I'm going to open in prayer, and we're going to get into the, the, the gospel according to John, our series in that called The Abundant Life. Let's do that. Father, we want to thank you for the privilege of your word. We want to thank you for the power of your word. It speaks truth. It lays us open. It encourages us. It equips us for every good work. Tonight, Spirit of God, speak to our hearts. Give us as your church ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us. And I pray, Father, very specifically what the Spirit is saying to every individual. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I grew up in a family in which there were five boys and one girl. And us boys, we were, we were rough. We were constantly getting into trouble. My mom was one of the most patient women on planet Earth. But my wife is like right up there with her, but my mom was so patient. Five boys. I remember the time in which I tried to see if I could put my mouth around a doorknob. It can be done. The trick is getting your mouth off of the doorknob. That was almost impossible, and it terrified me. And I had no idea how on earth I was going to do it. But my mom put up with that. I remember the time in, in which we, many times actually, in which we would wrestle in the living room. And my dad, I blame it on him, he's the one who taught us kids how to wrestle. And so we would wrestle and we would break stuff in the living room. The poor, you know, coffee table, I can't tell you how many times we broke that, broke the, the legs on that thing. Um, I remember the time in which I painted my face with peanut butter. I remember shooting out a neighbor's window with a BB gun. Okay, that wasn't me. That wasn't me. That was all on my brothers. But I tell you what, I just have so much to teach baby Luca. I'm looking forward to that. But you know, my mom would read to us all the time. My favorite thing was to sit and listen to her read and I would either have my head on her chest when I was sitting in her lap and a little kid, or bigger, and I would sit and I would put my head on her shoulder. And I, I, even during church services, when things got a little boring, I found that her shoulder was my comfort. But my mom was devoted. And I ended up marrying a woman who was equally, if not more, devoted than my mom. Uh, last week, I need, to, I need to apologize because I misspoke and somehow communicated that our children really didn't have this passion for learning until they hit high school. And really what I was trying to say is that when it was in high school that they learned to take initiative in like cleaning their room and I didn't have to do that. And mom wouldn't have to say, just remember to do your homework. They were doing it. And because my kids loved learning. If there's a picture of my wife that I could show you in my mind, it would be that regular picture in which she is sitting down and her children are either on her lap or gathered around her, listening to her read or listening to her teach. 
She has given up so much with regard to a passion that she has that I share with her, but that is in the area of homeschooling. And we realize that not everybody does that, but my wife took up that challenge. She was a nurse. She got a four-year degree, and she made a choice to leave that behind and to pursue training and teaching our children. And that's just been a joy in our heart. That's what we look forward to. That's what we used to look forward to. Now, it's the grandkids, right? And so if there's a picture in my mind right now, and it happened today, in which the grandkids, she's sitting down in a recliner, and all the grandkids are gathered around her, sitting on her lap, including baby Emily, and she's reading a book to them, because they, they love reading, and Kate has done a great job teaching them. But my wife is a picture of devotion. Tonight, I want to give you another picture of devotion, and that picture of devotion comes from our Savior Jesus. And as we're going through the Gospels, we're going to see this very clear picture, except you're not going to find the word devotion, you're going to find the word zeal. And that's basically the same thing. It is a passion. It is a zeal. I want to discover with you tonight what Jesus is passionate about. What is Jesus passionate about? So turn in your Bibles with me, if you would, to John chapter 2. I'm going to start with verse 12. I'm reading to the end of the chapter. I'm reading from the NIV. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, It's taken us 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. As I say, this is a picture of Jesus' devotion, his passion, his zeal. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we went through John chapter 1. We looked at John the Baptist and his epiphany that when the dove rested upon Jesus, that is when he knew Jesus. And that Greek word can mean recognize, but John had already recognized Jesus even before he went into the water, you recall, because he said to Jesus, wait, 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 I have need to be baptized by you. 
So he knew Jesus. He knew that Jesus was the one that he had been prophesying about and pointing people to. But at that moment, there was something about the dove concerning sacrifice and life. We saw those two things. And they pointed to two things, two titles that John speaks of concerning Jesus. And that is Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and Son of God. We saw, or we're going to see in this story, initially the Lamb of God, and then we're going to see the Son of God. And we're going to see throughout the Gospel of John, John's perspective on what Jesus came to this earth for. And so John focuses much more on Jesus' teaching, what Jesus said, more than, say, the synoptics do on what Jesus actually did. So if we look at our text here this evening, we find it, it happens so close to that time in which John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God. Now, we went last week, I went through and it says the next day, the next day, the next day, the next day. And then three days later, that's with the, uh, the turning of water into wine. And now we come, that they go, they go from Cana, they go back to Capernaum with Jesus' mother, brothers, and disciples. And they stayed there a few days. This is in the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Jesus has already done his first miracle. While he is at the Passover feast, he does many miracles and people begin to believe in him. He's already developing a following and they're, re they're seeing his miracles. And in verse 11 it says, and in this way, Jesus began to reveal his glory. See, Jesus wasn't just a man, though his favorite title was son of man but that was so couched in mystery it's actually more than just how Ezekiel identified himself son of man son of man or how God referred to him but son of man goes back to Daniel 7 the one who stands before the ancient of days and he is given all power and authority and a kingdom he has received it it's like his inheritance why because he's the son of God as well, not just son of man. So, but Jesus preferred this title, son of man, just because it was couched in so much mystery. And so he was careful in who he shared that title, son of God, with. Because they would immediately, you're blaspheming, we're going to stone you. And Jesus needed to, to, to last for about three and a half years of earthly ministry. And so he's careful in how much he reveals. And one particular reason that he did that he, he act or one reason why he, he spoke in parables was for this very reason. Now, in just a few days then, or a little over a week or more, Jesus is now at the, what, what feast? What feast did the Lamb of God go to? He went to the Passover feast. Do you see right there, John the Baptist, excuse me, John the uh, Evangelist is already setting the stage. Jesus, the Lamb of God, now goes to the Passover feast. And what's the central figure of any Passover feast? It's a Passover lamb. That lamb represented foreshadowed Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. So here is Jesus. Now he comes to Jerusalem. It's before the feast and things start escalating. Now, there are two views that people have about this cleansing of the temple. One is that it is merely a repetition 
of Jesus cleansing right before he was crucified during Passion Week. That this is actually John taking that event and putting it at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, or it, I shouldn't say at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, but at the beginning of his book to help move the story forward. And there's a reason for that that I'm going to get into, but the second view I believe is the one that is, is truly the correct one. And that is, this is actually a separate cleansing of the temple than what Jesus did at the end of his ministry. In other words, Jesus began his ministry cleansing the temple and he concluded his earthly ministry cleansing the temple. Why would Jesus do this? It seems pretty important. Jesus is trying to communicate something to the religious leaders. Now, you don't read that term religious leaders anywhere in, anywhere in here. Instead, you hear the words, the Jews. Now, the Jews is John's way, many times, not always, but many times, this is John's way of referring to the Jewish leaders. So it's not just any Jew, but John's lingo, it means this. We're going to find that as you go through John, many times the, the, Jesus is healing people, they're excited, but the Jews said, John the Baptist, who came to John the Baptist and said, who are you? It was the Jews who were Pharisees. So we're going to discover they end, they end up being the antagonists throughout the gospel according to John. And so they're here and they're criticizing him. And Jesus has something to say to them. Jesus wants to make a statement and it's about his passion for the temple and what on earth does that mean? Because the Jews didn't get it, so he cleansed the temple in the beginning of his ministry. For three and a half years, they still didn't get it. Even though he was the prophet foretold back in Deuteronomy 18. And here he is prophesying for three and a half years, and they still don't get it. The house of Israel still didn't understand this idea of the Father's house and its significance. We're going to unwrap it. There's truly so much that we could cover tonight uh, people, we don't have time for it, but we, I want to dig into it at least sufficiently so that we can see why would Jesus kind of bookend his ministry with the cle two cleansings of the temple. I'm going to suggest to you that this is a second or really the first cleansing as opposed in the beginning rather than the second at the end, that there are actually two, and it's different because number one, Jesus' response to, G excuse me, uh, Jesus says that he is going to, and if you destroy this temple, he'll raise it in three days. And the Jews' response is, wait a second, we've been building this temple for 46 years. Now, Josephus tells us that they started, Herod gave the command, King Herod, and they started building the temple around 19 or 20 BC. This is what Flavius Josephus tells us. He was a Jewish historian, wrote two books that he talks about this. And if you count off the years, remember, there's no such thing as 0 BC or 0 AD. It goes from minor, or, or 1 BC to 1 AD. That's just how we do it, right? And so as, you, as long as you understand it, the year then is about 27 or 28 AD uh, when this happens. The other cleansing took place after 30 AD. So that's one clue. Another clue is it says that Jesus actually did miracles during the feast, while he was at the feast, not before the feast, 
but he's teaching at the feast, during the feast. When did Jesus die? The end of his ministry. He died on Passover day. That's the day the feast begins. You have, you have Passover feast and then seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. John many times will refer, and you can check this out, he refers to that as the Passover feast. Not just Passover day, but it includes all of the, uh, all of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is John's way of saying, or this is John's way of referring to these, this long feast. Jesus did miracles then. How could Jesus do miracles when he died on Passover day? See, he didn't. He's obvi- this is obviously referring to a different cleansing. Even the focus, though not the topic, but the focus is slightly different with each one. We're going we're to need to get into that a bit. All right? Jesus then takes a whip because he sees what's going on in the temple. He takes a whip bound up with cords And he doesn't chase the people out, by the way, with the whip. He chases the cattle and the sheep out, if you were wondering. He didn't hit people with the whip. You've probably seen pictures of Jesus in which he doesn't say that he hits the people. He hits the animals, drives them out. They are probably in the the court of the Gentiles. That was the only place where the Gentiles could actually come and worship God because there were certain regulations... Concerning the temple, we'll get into maybe a little bit of that, but the picture that the temple had certain regulations that they had to follow. Gentiles, rather, were not allowed in the inner court, only the outer court. And this is where this is taking place. Why? Because they'll make more money, but it is so noisy. This is a place of worship. So Jesus really challenges them, but he takes the whip, he drives out the animals, and then he says to those who are selling doves, very specifically, he says this, get these out of here, how dare you turn my father's house into a market? What is he clearly implying, church? If, that's, if, if God is my father, then he must be what? The son. This is John's point throughout his gospel. Jesus is the son, not just a son, but the son, the son of God. And therefore, he has authority. Get to that in just a moment. So Jesus is saying, this is my father's, my father's, my daddy's house. So who else has authority in the house? Other than the father, it would be more than likely the oldest son, the firstborn son, the only begotten son. Do you see where I'm going with this? Jesus, of course, has a... But the Jews don't... They're not going to accept that. This is my father's house. What's going on here? Jesus is not opposing business. He understands that God created business, church. He created the concepts of trade, just not in the Father's house. Perhaps, though, when he's addressing those who are selling doves, see, doves generally were sold more as sacrifices for the poor, and Jesus is really ticked at these people, Very possibly because they're making money hand over fist, selling the doves to the poor at an exorbitant price. Now, 
I'm not going to say that that's Jesus, fo- that's Jesus' focus, that you're making too much money. We don't read that in the text. I believe that the main point goes beyond that. I'm just saying that's why he spoke directly to those who were selling doves. They were taking advantage of the poor. I don't believe Jesus is opposing marketing or business per se, but it is the marketing, it's the business that's now intruding into the temple. Why no business? Why no marketing? Why is Jesus so zealous or jealous of his father's house to keep that kind of stuff out? The very first thing that we need to recognize is that the temple... In Jesus' lifetime, earthly lifetime, the temple was the place to express our devotion to God. I want you to keep your thumb here or your finger there, and I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 21. Now, this is actually Jesus' second cleansing about three to three and a half years later at the end of his earthly ministry, just before he was crucified. And in Matthew 21, starting with verse 12, just 12 and 13 is all I'm going to read. It says here, Matthew says, Jesus entered the temple area. So he comes riding in on a donkey on Sunday. He goes into the temple. Mark says, checks it out and then leaves. He comes back on Monday. And this is where the story picks up. Jesus entered the temple area on Monday and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the temples of the, excuse me, the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. You're making it a den of robbers. Now, some have concluded that Jesus' main point is that they're just making too much money. Can I suggest I don't believe that's Jesus' main point? You know, you're making too much. You know, this capitalism is really putting greed in your heart. I believe that's what Jesus is getting at. I believe Jesus is trying to say something a little bit different with this phrase, den of robbers. Now, I'm gonna, I want to take just a few minutes, not long, but a few minutes Keep your thumb, you got your thumb, in, you got one finger in John 2, now you can keep another finger here in Matthew 21, and we're going to go over to Jeremiah chapter 7, okay? Jeremiah chapter 7. This is where Jesus gets the phrase, den of robbers. Jeremiah, there were three pro- main prophets that lived during the Babylonian captivity around 600 B.C., 550, 530 B.C. It was Daniel, Ezekiel. They were the ones that actually went to Babylon. Jeremiah was the third. He stayed at home. In 586, by the way, the temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. This happens just prior to that time. They're in captivity, and Jesus said, excuse me, and Jeremiah prophesies and says this. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we're safe, safe to do all these detestable things? 
Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I've been watching, declares the Lord. Go now to the place in Shiloh. Shiloh is where the tabernacle, coming out of their 40 years wandering in the wilderness, Shiloh is where they set it up. It was there for quite a while, but it was destroyed, actually burned down. Now, the tabernacle wasn't burned, but the town. The tabernacle wasn't burned, but the town was. And it was destroyed. Go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. That happened close to the end of the book of Judges. While you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, what I did in Shiloh, I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in, the place I gave to you and your fathers. I will thrust you from my presence just as I did all, the, all your brothers, the people of Ephraim, that is the northern kingdom. So he's speaking to the southern kingdom, kingdom of Judah. They're the ones that went off into captivity in Babylon. Verse 16, so do not pray for this people, not off, nor offer any plea or petition for them. This is God speaking. Do not plead with me, for I will not listen to you. That sounds kind of final, doesn't it? For hundreds of years, Israel has been wandering away. The northern kingdom came to an end in 722. It's now shortly after 600 BC, and it's now Judah's time. I want you to see something here. He calls them, calls the house, actually they've turned the temple into this, a den of robbers. Now, stealing is the very first, first sin that I mentioned here, but there's so many more. There's offering incense and offerings to Baal. And then they come to my house and they say, we're safe here. As if they can do all of the running and, and sin and compromise and then come back to their religious duties, you know, the sanctuary of God, and now they're safe. And God is saying, you know what? I'm going to take all of that away from you. You are so religious on the outside, but in your hearts, your heart is a den of robbers. Den of thieves, stealing. But that's not the only sin. Den of robbers is basically covering all of the sins. But let me suggest something to you. Why does he focus on stealing? Can I, and maybe this is just my personal opinion. Why does he, why does he say you're, you've called, it's a den of adulterers or a den of idolaters? That would probably fit even better. But he says a den of thieves, a den of robbers, people who steal. Why? Because in their compromise, they are stealing the affections of the people. Their affections needed to be for the temple of God, but their instead their affections were for their sin. It was for their compromise. It was for what would please the flesh. 
And they cared little for truly the very purpose of what the temple was all about. And see, this is what Jesus is getting at. You, you're doing this in the court of the Gentiles, and you are robbing them of their pure, sincere devotion to God himself. The religious leaders of the day were the hypocrites that were actually turning so many away. Church, you see, when we live a life of duplicity, meaning when our hearts are this way one moment and then this way another, and we declare of how we're following God, and yet the way we live truly is shameful, God says, you're robbing from me. You're stealing the affections of the people around you. And instead of making God your sole focus and passion, the world is your sole focus and passion. And that is how they began to turn people away from their pure, sincere devotion to God. And it's right in the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. See, the temple was that place in which man encountered God. For us, since we don't have a temple, its fulfillment is not in this building, church. This is not a holy sanctuary. You are a holy people, and for that reason you make it holy, but when it's empty, it's not holy. There's nothing special. It's a place. Jesus says, actually, two chapters later, you're not going to worship me here on Mount Gerizim or in Jerusalem. There's going to come a time in which that won't matter a hill of beans. And I'm sure that's in the Greek somewhere. It's not going to matter at all. Because well, God is looking for a people who worship me in spirit and in truth. According to truth, according to God's word. And these people's hearts, they were duplicitous. They were pulled in two directions. They were, as James says, double-minded. And Jesus is, is, is stepping in and he's saying, do you not understand why there were regulations for the temple? See, God is not opposed to business but when business becomes your sole focus in life, your passion, that now becomes an idol. And you know what God has to say about idolatry. And yet Christians throughout the West, and I'm sure on the other side of the world too, we compromise. We are not passionate about the things of God. See, the temple is where, we com is where you communed with God. The temple is where you prayed, you sacrificed, you, you took your, your money and you, you, it took, you worked hard to get the money that you purchased those sacrifices and now you sacrificed them and basically said, God, this is, this is for you. I'm lit giving it to you. It was where we worshipped. The temple then was a picture of the heart of the believer. And whenever you introduce Christians, whenever you introduce compromise into your heart, Jesus is saying, hey, get this out of here. Because this is my Father's house. Your heart is the Father's house. That's where the Spirit of God, if you're a follower of Jesus, that's where the Spirit of God takes up residence. 
And Jesus is going to guard it jealously and, yes, zealously. And so when they ask, when they're saying, you know, why are you doing this? Jesus, Jesus, or his disciples remember, by the way, he says, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for your house will consume me. And so here, here's my question to you. Does zeal for God's house consume you? Again, I'm not talking about a sanctuary. I'm not talking about a building. I'm talking about intimacy with the Father. Since that took place in the temple at the time of Jesus and earlier, now it takes place in our heart. Is that place a holy place in your life? Do you really get it that that's the Father's house? Are you zealous for it? To be honest with you, sin, the compromises that neutralizes us can cause us to lose the taste for prayer and God's word and worship. The law of displacement says that if you take, say, a cup of water filled to the brim and start pouring stones into it, are the stones, well, what's going to happen to the water? It's going to start overflowing because of the law of displacement. And when we begin to fill our heart with sin, just sinful practices, that, and, and usually for Christians, it's just, a, it's just a little step to the side and then another step. That's how it goes. It's that you generally don't just, oh, man, and start heading off into left field. It's step by step by step. It's little compromises here and there. And I'm going to just tell you, if that is happening in your life, God's grace is more than enough to not just call you back and win you, but to wash away every sin. Toro was witnessing to that tonight. And he can take care of every bit of guilt, every bit of shame, gone. Peter went through this. He felt so ashamed for denying Jesus three times. So in the very end of this gospel, Jesus asks him, so Peter, do you love me? But he didn't stop there three times. He asked him, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter said, yes. And Jesus just began to break that shame off. And then maybe some of us, that's what we need. God just needs to break that shame off. Sin can distract, sin can lead us astray. How about distractions? I'm not talking about sins. I'm talking about things like hobbies. I'm talking about things like responsibilities, like interests, business, recreation. Sometimes we serve so much on the outside like Martha, but have no desire to simply sit at Jesus' feet anymore. We pick up a good book. We're so excited about it. And I, I get this. And instead of having our quiet time, we pull out that good book. I read the end of the chapter. And I'm not saying that you, you, that's sin. You just can't do that. But when that happens regularly and now you push God out of that time, Jesus wants to guard that time with you jealously, zealously. Now, can I just say spiritual disciplines like reading the Bible, prayer, worship, these are many times called spiritual disciplines. If you do it four hours a day, that is not, listen to me, that is not a benchmark for spirituality. The Pharisees did it far more than that. 
And Jesus said to his disciples, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, forget about the kingdom of heaven. So you, you can spend six hours a day. That is not a benchmark for spirituality. On the other hand, intimacy with God and depth of character can only be achieved when the spiritual disciplines are present. So do you see what I'm saying? They're not a benchmark, but you can't live without them. All right. Disciplined training does not necessarily make a good athlete. There's plenty of people out there running around so disciplined in their exercising, and they have never won an award. Maybe that's not what they're after, but you, you get the point. But I tell you what, if you want to be an athlete that sets records, you better have those disciplines or you ain't making it. The zeal or devotion for God's house, this worship, intimacy with God, does it consume you? For Jesus, he, he zealously guarded that. No compromise here, guys. Do that stuff out here. That's fine. But this time with me, I just want your heart. I want your very best. I want you. Church, guard that with everything in you. Don't allow things to crowd out your devotion to the Lord. Now, Jesus' temple, or this temple, is more than just a place to worship. The temple was also, so that's literal, now symbolically or figuratively, the temple was to prefigure Jesus. Look at the brazen altar, look at the candelabra, look at the... Um, the, the showbread look at the altar of incense now look into the holy of holies and the the ark of the covenant and the very presence of god all of these things were pictures put together of jesus's salvation the lavers for washing and so on the, the blood that would run off the altar and it was a huge altar you see, these things were pictures of the salvation that would come in Christ. And Jesus wanted to guard that. Give the people a perfect picture. Don't distort it. And, but they weren't doing that. that. That's why there were so many regulations. And if you read through Leviticus and, and some of these other books in, the, in the, the Old Testament, you step back and say, why is God being so picky? Wow, Nadab and Abihu, okay, so they offered incense, but it wasn't the exact timing or the right kind, and God struck them dead. They were Aaron's two oldest sons, and God struck them dead because God wanted to guard a perfect picture as far as a picture can be, a perfect picture or figure of what Christ was going to accomplish. And so he said, look, I, I need you to preserve this picture. Stop distorting it. Church, what picture do we give to the world? We're following Jesus. And church, I'm going to encourage you, keep following him. It's hard sometimes. Keep following him. But what happens when you mess up? What happens when you fall into the world? And I'm not just talking about a single sin. I'm talking about when you jump in with both feet 
your picture to the world of a follower of Jesus gets distorted. And Jesus is saying, I need a good picture for you to represent me to the world. The temple represented Jesus and his work of salvation. And then it also represented you and me, the church. Eight times Paul uses the phrase temple of God referring to the people of God. It's no longer a place in Jerusalem. By the way, that was destroyed in 70 AD within a generation of Jesus cleansing the temple for the second time. And he told him it was going to happen. This generation will not pass away until. And so it happened. It was destroyed. They didn't listen. They had rejected Jesus, but they continued to live out a distorted picture of what God's plan of salvation was. They ask him then, by what authority do you do this? You come in here, you're even referring to God, our Father, as your Father. This is my Father's house, as if you're the big man in town, as if you're the some sort of son who's, now since God, can't, we can't physically see him here, but now you're representing him. What is up with this? Who gives you the authority? Because these are the Jews, these are the leaders. In other words, we're saying it's okay, but you're trumping us. Where do you think you're coming from, Jesus? And Jesus refers now to, hey, destroy this temple or raise it in three days. Is he referring to the literal temple? No, it was destroyed in 70 AD, never to be resurrected. He was referring to his body. Jesus was pointing to his resurrection. Romans 1.4 says that the Spirit of God declared Jesus to be the Son of God by, do you remember, by his resurrection. By his right, the miracle of all miracles. Church, in just a, excuse me, in just a few days, when they say, we're asking, show us a miraculous sign. Jesus gave them plenty of miraculous signs. He did plenty of miracles here, but they, he doesn't point to any of them. He points to one thing, his resurrection. Because the Son of God is the one who, by his resurrection, brings life. Remember, the Lamb of God is the one who is sacrificed for the sins of the world. The Son of God is now the one who imparts life. You're going to see that throughout the Gospel of John. You see it here. The Son is the one who gives life. And all those who believed in him, especially when you get to chapter 3, they are the ones, those who believe in the Son, have life, eternal life. By what authority does Jesus give this? Because he's the Son. And the Son lives in your heart in the person of his Spirit. He has authority there, church. He's your elder brother in the sense that he was a human being, but he is the Son of the Father, and he is saying, I want your heart. That he is so zealous for your heart, he says right here, the zeal, did you, did you read that? It, it consumes him. Wow. 
It consumes him. His passion. When Jesus goes to sleep at night and he wakes up, and okay, maybe he doesn't. But his passion that he eats and dreams and sleeps and everything, it's the church and, and it's his salvation and glory displayed on his church and God's complete revelation of that salvation to the people who are lost in this world. And he wants your heart in complete devotion to him. He is consumed with zeal for that church. And so I want to leave you tonight. This is not some kind of guilt trip if you're not spending four hours of, uh, every day in the Word and in prayer and in worship. You see, but if you, want to, if you want to be more like Christ, if you want to follow after Him, if you want to represent Him well to the world, then Jesus, the Son who has authority, wants your heart guarded. Give that to Him. Your heart is, is who you are. It's everything. Don't compromise. Don't let your passions for the things of the world. And I'm not saying that business is wrong. I own my own business. But when that becomes my passion, something's wrong. What is your passion? I'm not saying you can't be passionate about your business. If you're not passionate about your business, I need to talk to you because you need to be. But your highest passion has got to be Jesus. It has to be. Church, can you stand with me? Father, thank you for the example that we have of your son and, and his zeal and our confession here tonight, Lord God, is that we, that I am not zealous for you, your kingdom, the way I know you want me to be. If there's something that's just going on in my heart, if there's just so many distractions, then get our eyes back on you, Jesus. If there's so many sins and a seeking after the world and a love for the world, kill that love then, Jesus, please. Kill that love for the world. If the devil is stealing our affections, cut him off, oh God. Protect the heart of your people here tonight. Call them, Father, and just give us this picture day in and day out of this consuming passion of Jesus for his temple and our devotion to you, our hearts. And I just ask you, Father, as we walk with you, may we be so much like Mary, just enjoying not feeling the weight of law, but enjoying being with you. And if you need to win our hearts again, God, then do that. That's your privilege. But may we as your people, just like Jesus, may our zeal for your house consume us. Please, God, thank you. And may this be something we delight in. In Jesus' name I pray.